you know, one of the reasons that we uh, gather and lay hands on those whom we send out as a church is so that it might be a symbolic reminder to all of us that this is our work, right? Those whom we send out, we do not send out as if now you're on your own, but you're send out so that you might do the work that we feel responsible for, that uh, we do this. Thinking back uh, years ago as we sent out Timothy and Haley to Salt Lake and, and, and said to them, uh, we are with you. And, and part of that continuing to be with them is praying that the Lord might raise up and send others to join them, even as Cameron's doing today. And so Cameron will not only continue to pray for you, but continue to pray that others may join as well. Well, this morning we come to Romans chapter 2. As we've been working our way through the book of Romans, our text this morning is chapter 2, verse 17 through verse 24. If you've picked up a Bible from either of the back tables, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17 is on page 940. 940. And as you turn there, if you're able, if you would one more time stand so that we can honor the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through verse 24. Being inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God. By breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, my prayer now as, as we come to the preaching of the word is, is that you would simply do what you want to do. Lord, you know the end for which you have um, had this text written. And you know the end for which you're now having this text preached, all that you want to do for your people. And so, God, I just pray where we need comfort, would you give comfort? And where we need conviction, would you bring conviction? You who know us better than we know ourselves, would you do what we desperately need now? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Reflecting on uh, Israel's disobedience in the wilderness, their refusal to trust, to, to place their faith in the Lord, and their consequent judgment. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Later, he wrote, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. In other words, Paul says that though it happened years ago, that Israel uh, wandered around as Lord's people and, and, and walked in disobedience to him, refused to exercise faith and were consequently judged, Paul says, though it happened years ago, and though you might think that it has nothing to do with us in one sense, Paul said, the Lord made sure that those events, their disobedience and their consequent judgment, was written down so that we might consider it, so that we might remember and see an example in them, a path that we do not want to go down. He wanted us to see by their unbelief and disobedience a warning, a warning that we need to heed, lest we also fall. Now, I mentioned that because this morning, Paul continues to, to look at the example of the unbelieving Jew pointing out his sin and consequent condemnation before God. But I don't want us to think that, that Paul, writing to the unbelieving Jew, if you or I this morning do not fall into the category of the unbelieving Jew, that this text has nothing to do with us. Because I think it very much does. In a similar fashion, I think Paul would have us this morning look at what he says, consider their example, and take heed lest we likewise fall. This is one reason why I wanted to take these first few chapters in, in bite-sized pieces, just basically taking a paragraph at a time and, and looking through it slowly so that, that we might have the opportunity to consider, to be careful, to be thoughtful about what's going on in this text. So this reason, as we look for this, this morning rather, as we look at chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, I, I want to do three things this morning. One, I want to make a preliminary statement about what Paul himself is doing in this text. That is, in addition to thinking through the argument that he's making, I want to step back and just consider the fact that he's making an argument at all and think through how should that affect us, what Paul's doing Second, I then want to take time to look at the argument itself. What is Paul arguing with a Jew? Why, why is he making the points that he's making? Help us to understand what is the main point of verse 17 to verse 24. And then I want to end by attempting to make a particular application to us, those who today hear and need to heed Paul's words here, lest we likewise perish as the unbelieving Jew. So the first thing I want to do then is make that preliminary note about Paul himself and what he is doing. And I want, I want to make this point in the form of a direct address, an application to us. I want to say it this way. Point one, it will be good and necessary for us to tear down others' insufficient defense before God. It will be good and necessary for us to tear down others' insufficient defense before God. Now, let me explain why I'm making this point. Paul, when he began in, in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul noted that all men in their unrighteousness are under the wrath of God. And then from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, 
Paul is going to show the sinfulness and the condemnation of all men apart from Jesus Christ. He began with the Gentile in chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of the chapter, verse 32. And one of the things that he noted about the Gentile is that the Gentile can claim no ignorance and can claim no excuse because what he argues is, though the Gentile may have no exposure to the Bible at all, though the Gentile may have had no one preach to him at all, God has made himself known in the created order. And when God wants to make himself known to someone, he succeeds in making himself known. So God made the created order in such a way that all men, without exception, know that God exists, know that God deserves to be honored, know that God deserves to be worshipped. But unbelieving Gentiles, Paul argues, what they're doing is they're taking what they know to be true, that God exists and should be honored, and they're suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness and turning to idolatry and all measure of unrighteous living. The Gentiles then, unbelieving Gentiles, condemned. Starting in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention then to showing the sinfulness and condemnation of the unbelieving Jew. Having already shown the sinfulness and condemnation of the unbelieving Gentile, he turns his attention to the sinfulness and condemnation of of the unbelieving Jew. But what Paul knows that is different concerning the unbelieving Jew is that the unbelieving Jew will make a defense. You see, the unbelieving Gentile may well just say something like this. Paul, you say that I'm sinful and condemned before God who will judge me? Well, I've got news for you. I don't even think the God you tell me is going to judge me actually exists. No defense needs to be offered. I think you're crazy. The unbelieving Jew is not going to say the same thing. The unbelieving Jew knows that there is the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The unbelieving Jew knows that all men are liable to this God, and the unbelieving Jew knows that this God will judge men. Consequently, the unbelieving Jew will not say, Paul, I think what you're saying is foolish, but rather offer a defense. This is the reason why Paul takes a longer time showing the sinfulness and condemnation of the unbelieving Jew than he did the unbelieving Gentile. Because what he does, starting in chapter 2 and following, is he takes apart their defense piece by piece. First, he knows in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that the unbelieving Jew may well simply point to the fact that God is going to show partiality to us. That is, they may presume on God and say, well, yes, 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 men are messed up, but God shows special partiality toward us. I will be excused on the day of judgment because I'm a Jew and God has shown us as a people great kindness, a kindness that he has not shown other people. And Paul's argument is, yes, God did show you kindness. But the reason he showed you kindness is so that in his kindness, he might lead you to repentance. Because God judges justly and he judges impartially. And what he demands of all people everywhere is that they repent of their sins and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Paul knows the other argument that the unbelieving Jew may well make is, we won't be condemned because we have the law. God gave us the law of Moses. He did not give the law of Moses to others. He gave it to us. We are a special people whom God has given his commandments. This is kind of like the argument that Israel made to Jeremiah. Remember this one, Jeremiah in the Old Covenant 
was preaching and saying God's going to judge them because of their sin, what defense did they offer? They didn't say we're not bad. They didn't say we've obeyed God's commands. Rather, what they said was, we have the temple. God built the temple for us. This is where his presence dwelt. God will not judge us. He's given us the temple. Well, now Paul knows that the unbelieving Jew very well could say, God's not going to judge us. We have the law. And Paul answers that defense by saying, no, no, not so fast. Having the law is not the crucial thing. What's crucial is not having or hearing the law, but actually doing the law. And you've not done it. More than that, in some sense, everyone else has the law as well. Because the Gentile has the law written on his heart. He may have never heard the law of Moses preach, but he knows that adultery is wrong. He knows that stealing is wrong. And one of the ways he shows, even in this age, that the law is written on his heart is because he does something that, that, that God, through the, the, the law of Moses, he's never read, that God condemns. And he has this instinct within himself that if I've done this, I better offer an excuse for why I've done it, because I know it's wrong. Or, if someone else has done this, though no one's ever read to him the law of Moses, he will accuse them of wrong. He's always excusing or accusing, and what it shows is the laws written on his heart. So Paul has taken their first offense, presumption of God's partiality. No, he's just and he's par- impartial. Their defense, we have the law, so does everybody else, and what matters is not having the law, but actually doing the law. Well, beginning in verse 17 through 24, what Paul does here is it's as if he, he pushes all his chips in the middle of the table and says, let me just mount defense after defense after defense after defense, and then I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to tear down your inadequate defense before God. Paul says, you're going to say, you call yourself a Jew, you boast in God, you have the law, you teach others to do these good things, and I'm going to take all of that as an insufficient defense and destroy it. And the reason Paul does that is not, is not because Paul does not like unbelieving Jews. It is not because Paul just loves confrontation and argument. He just can't get enough of it. It's not because there's nothing in his heart that feels compassion for them. Rather, the reality is Paul loves his fellow countrymen so deeply that he says in Romans 9 that he has great sorrow and, hear hear this word, hear this phrase, great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his fellow countrymen who do not believe in Christ. I do not think Paul is given to exaggeration when he says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart when I think about my fellow countrymen, the Jews who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul will go on to say something that's almost impossible to understand. He will say, I could wish myself condemned before God if it would mean their salvation. So he clearly is not tearing down their defense because he is a bitter man who's just mean and and loves to to, to tackle and, and tear down at others. No, he is tearing down their insufficient defense because he deeply loves them. And he knows on that final day, their insufficient defense will be insufficient before God. And he does not want to see them condemned And so I just, right off the bat, just want to make a preliminary note about what Paul's doing and just make sure we understand 
for us, it's going to be good and necessary on occasion for us to tear down the insufficient defense that others will offer before God. What I mean is this, brothers and sisters, it is not only okay but a loving act to say to your Mormon friend, you have all manner of external morality in your life. But unless you believe that Jesus Christ is God, the Son, the eternal God, the Son incarnate, who, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, who was raised from the dead on the third day, you will be condemned on that final day. It's not only okay, but it's loving and good to say to your Roman Catholic friend, and again, I, I know many Roman Catholics uh, could be saved, but the official teaching of the church condemns the very hope we have for salvation. Justification by faith alone. So it's okay to say to your Roman Catholic friend, hey, I know that you're doing a lot of good in society. I really love the fact that you're fighting for life and that you think abortion is an evil. But I have news for you. I just want to make sure that you're not in any way thinking that your works can serve as a basis for your salvation on that final day. Because Paul will write in Romans eleven six, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't mix grace and my works as a basis for salvation. And Paul says, if you try it, then it's going to be all your works on that final day. So, it's not only okay, but it will be necessary and good for us on occasion to tear down the insufficient defenses of others, just as Paul is doing for these unbelieving Jews. We may have to do for our neighbors. And one of the reasons I want to say that, especially right now at this moment in history, is I think the, the more and more our culture becomes hostile to the way that we live and the way that we think as Christians, there can be a temptation to say, Anyone who's kind of with me in any way is okay. And the reality is there may be some of us who very much agree on how we all should live who are on their way to hell because they do not trust that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. So that's the first preliminary note I just want to make. Are we good and necessary for us to tear down others' insufficient defense before God? A second point, the main point of the text, I think, is this. Here's what Paul's saying in verses 17 through 24. It's possible to have knowledge of Scripture, even instruct others, and be damned. It's possible to have knowledge of Scripture, even instruct others in regards to what the Scripture teaches, and be damned, be condemned, and be cast into a lake of fire on the final day. Starting in verse 17, as I said, it's as if Paul pushes all his chips into the middle of the table saying, let me just offer all the defenses, no doubt, that you will give. And he takes them in verses 17 through 20 and he outlines all the arguments that they're going to give. And then starting in verse 21 through 24, he then tears them down. So let's first look at his argument. Verses 17 and 18. Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve of what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law. Now, let's just stop right there. Paul is saying, I know some of the things that you're going to say that you think are an adequate defense before God, and so I just want to take them all up. One of them is you're simply going to say, I'm a Jew. Now, 
You may think, well, that that means very little. But when you read the Old Testament, it does. Again, I I referenced this last week, but in Amos chapter 3 that that Tom preached a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that God says in Amos chapter 3 to the Israelites is, you only have I known of all the families on the face of the earth. It's not as if the Hittites also got a copy of the Law of Moses. They didn't. It's not as if the Egyptians also were told, construct a tent in the middle of your camp of meeting and my presence will dwell with you. They didn't. It was to the Jews alone that God gave the law. It was to the Jews alone that God's presence dwelt among them. God showed himself to the Jews in a special way. So Paul knows one of the things that the unbelieving Jew might say is simply, hey, Paul, I'm a Jew. I'm from that line. If you trace my genealogy, you'll go all the way back to Abraham. That should be sufficient. The second thing Paul knows that they might do is they might simply note that they rely on the law. Now, we hear that, and we can think of that in a negative way, right? We do not rely on the law for our salvation, but I don't think Paul means it negatively. I think it mean, he means it positively. That you could say, I rely on the law. I look to the law for instruction. Think about what David says about the law in, in the Psalter. David would say, your law, right? It's like, like honey to my lips. It's a, a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. It, it nourishes my soul. That you could say, not, not only is my, my genealogy connected to Abraham, the special people to whom you revealed yourself, but, but I rely on the law. I look to the law to see what is good and what is bad. I look to the law to see what I should do and what I should not do. Not only that, Paul, Paul can note, they may well say, and we boast in God. Listen, boasting in God is a good thing. One of the things that Paul, uh, rather that God makes clear in the Old Testament is, listen, do not boast in things about yourselves. Don't let the mighty man boast of his might. Don't let the rich man boast of his riches. God will say through the prophet Jeremiah, but if you're going to boast, God says, let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. It would be good for people to boast of their God, for the Jew to say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God superior to the gods, to the supposed gods of the Egyptians, to the supposed gods of the Hittites, and on and on and on. Not only that, Paul knows that they could say we know his will. We approve of what is excellent. We, we know that, that, that God says you, he, he alone should be worshipped. We approve of that. And the reason we know all of this, Paul it's because we're instructed from the law. All of those are, are fine and good things. To be a Jew, to rely on the law, to know his will, to boast in God, to approve of what is excellent because you have God's law. And then in verses 19 and 20, he just ratchets up more, right? Verse 19, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, Paul says, not only that, but but you very well could look at yourself and say, we're a light to those in darkness. And you know what? That's exactly what Israel was supposed to be. They're supposed to be a light to those who are in darkness. All of the nations, the way this should have worked is that all of the nations should have looked at Israel and said, that's an example of how you live. And we want to go to those people and get instruction from them. They're like a beacon of light shining in the midst of darkness. And we want to go to them so that they can be a, a guide to us who have been blind. So that they can be a structure to us. That they can teach our children. Because in the law, they have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. At this point, in verses 17 through 20, you may well expect the unbelieving Jew, and no doubt he would have to have said, Amen. 
Paul. You got it right. That's who we are. That's what we'll say. That's what we do. But then Paul begins to take that argument, that defense, that platform, and just levels it. He goes right at their heart. Here's what he says in verses 21 through 23. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, what Paul simply asked them is this. When you're, when you're that instructor to the blind, when you're that guy to the blind, that instructor to the foolish, and you tell people, do not commit adultery, and do not steal, and do not, uh, rate, uh, you should rather, let's say positively, abhor idols. Are you meanwhile committing adultery and stealing and going into the temples and taking these idols? Adultery, of course, is, is sexual morality where you, you go after either another man's wife or in marriage yourself, yet you go after someone else. Stealing, of course, self-evident. Robbing idols from temples, what in the world does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, uh, the idols that were set up in temples could be valuable, perhaps uh, made of gold or some other um, expensive material. And so the temptation could be to say, uh, I hate and condemn all forms of idolatry, but I'll sneak in there on a Saturday night and grab one. And go steal it, sell it on the street, make some money, that I'll, I'll profit from this venture. What Paul's calling out here is hypocrisy. Now, is Paul saying then that every one of these unbelieving Jews he knew were guilty of idolatry, were guilty of adultery, were guilty of stealing? That's probably far-fetched. I didn't think Paul knew every one of you who's teaching you committed adultery. In fact, probably not. I would say, though, however, perhaps some were. There, there very well would be some unbelieving Jews who would say, check, I, I did steal an idol, or I did commit adultery, or I did steal something else. But Paul's point isn't, Paul's point isn't, I know you've done these specific acts. These specific acts are representative of the fact of sin itself. What Paul is saying is this. Well, he says it very clearly in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the laws. Paul's point is simply this. You teach that people should obey the law, and that's how we're right before God. And yet you yourself fail your own standard. You who say that we must obey, you don't obey. You who say that the law must be kept and that person will be blessed by God, you don't keep the law. Consequently, he says in verse 24, as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Israel was supposed to be, as they went throughout the whole world, uh, uh, again, that, that light, that shining beacon that said God is glorious and should be worshipped. People should be wanting to flock to Israel. But you know what was happening? As Israel went to these other lands or as they lived their lives, they actually loved their gods, the foreign gods. They would fashion idols like the idols of the surrounding nations. And one of the things that it was saying to the surrounding nations is, and here's how the surrounding nations were hearing it. They would look at Israel see their disobedience, see all of their idolatry, and they would say something like this, the God of Israel must not be that glorious. Because if he were glorious, it would be enough for them to worship him. But he must not be that glorious because they're chasing after our gods. The God of Israel must not be that majestic and holy because if he were, they would obey him. But they're clearly not obeying him. And this is why Paul says, you're blaspheming 
the name of God among the Gentiles, among the nations. This is why we read this text last, last week in Ezekiel. When God goes to redeem Israel, he says, I'm doing this for my namesake. Because you've made it look to the rest of the world like I'm not worth worshiping, that I'm not worth obeying. So again, what's Paul's point then in this text? This point to these Jews who think they offer this sufficient defense to be justified before God. Paul's point is, you fail by your own standard. If you think and you're teaching that we become righteous before God on the basis of doing the works of the law, then look at your lives. You're failing. You've not done it. You fail by your own standard. Okay, well, if that's Paul's argument, what then did Paul want them to do? Is Paul saying this so that they'll say, Paul, you're right. I need to stop stealing from temples. Paul, you're right. I'm going to stop adultery today. No, no, no. When Paul shows them that they're failing by their own standard, Paul wants them to understand, therefore, their teaching is flawed completely. They need to abandon the standard of thinking that we are justified before God on the basis of obeying the law. What Paul wants them to do, rather, is simply realize that they can never do enough good and turn to Christ. Now, how do we know that? Because look at Romans chapter 10. Just turn over a few pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 10. And in the first three verses of Romans chapter 10, Paul spells out why these Gentiles who were so zealous, it seemed, for God, who had the law, who boasted in these things, why they never actually found salvation. And he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God, for them, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, and this is so key in the book of Romans, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own That is, their own righteousness. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul says, here's what they were doing wrong. The problem wasn't that they had the law. The problem wasn't that they were descended from Abraham. The problem wasn't that they thought that they should be a light to the nations. All of those things are good and fine and great. The problem was that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the fact that the way God saves us is not by saying, here are my commands, do them, and if you do them perfectly well, I will save you. Rather, God gave the law in order that men might see, I cannot do enough. And God's answer, His righteousness is this, I know you cannot do enough, therefore I'm going to provide righteousness for you. And the way that He provides righteousness for us is by sending His Son who did perfectly obey the law, who did perfectly obey God's commands. He was born under the law as one under the law so that He could perfectly keep the law for us. And what we do then is the one who perfectly keeps the law for us then goes to the cross to die to pay for our sins, to bear the penalty for us, and then is raised from the dead on the third day so that it's supposed to work this way. God, you've given me your commands. I can't do them. I can't do enough. I can't be righteous on the basis of my good works. My only hope then is to turn, repent, right? To turn from any attempt of doing good enough on my own 
and by faith trust in the one who lived perfectly righteous for me and paid for my sin. When we do that, then, God takes the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is the righteousness of God they were ignorant of. God takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and credits it fully to us, having paid for our sins in Christ so that everyone who has repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ stands before God credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is what the Jew was ignorant of and therefore he attempted to establish righteousness on the base of his own good works. And consequently, unless he places his faith in Christ, he will be condemned on that final day. This is the point Paul wanted these Jews to see. You have knowledge of Scripture, you've been instructed others, but you will be damned on that final day of judgment. You will be cast into the lake of fire. Your defense is insufficient. Because the only way of salvation is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to note to us this morning, the same thing is true. If you're here today and you've been relying on your defense before God on the day of judgment being, I hope I've done enough good, well, I can go ahead and tell you right now, you haven't. No one has and no one can outside of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to exhort you to do is today to turn from your attempt to do enough good and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone for salvation. If you would like to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you. That's the main point of the text. Now let me make a particular application to us. And before I make the point of application, I just want to note a few things about why um, I want to do this. Thinking about this text pastorally, my heart was just moved at first just to see the goodness of what Paul's doing. This is a good thing to tear down others' insufficient defense. That's why I wanted to make that preliminary point. And then to think through what Paul's doing. This is a people he knows well. He knows how they're acting. He knows how they're thinking. One of the evidences that Paul knows they're thinking so well is in Philippians chapter 3. Do you remember Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says... If you want to have confidence in the flesh, if you want to boast in your own works being sufficient for the righteousness of Christ, Paul says, I can actually do it better than you. I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I've done this and this and this and this. And then he says, but I've counted all loss. Simply placing his faith in Christ. And so I just thought, a few things have been weighing on my heart pastorally. One of them is just asking this question. Who is it who may be in this room right now, or as I thought about it this week, who might be in this room right now on a Sunday morning, on this Sunday morning, who have some kind of insufficient defense, who perhaps think that they're okay before God when they're really not. They're as blinded as the unbelieving Jew here. The other thought in my mind that, that, that makes me consider the fact because we could say, well, there's nobody that fits that category. The thing that makes me think that there could be individuals who fit that category, and this is just a haunting text, isn't it? That in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus will say, he's picturing this, this form of judgment, this picture of judgment, and Jesus will say, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not? And then they'll name a list of things that they attempted to do in Jesus' name. And he'll just say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
and they'll be cast in the lake of, lake of fire. And, and one of the things that particularly has been bothersome to me this week as I've thought about that text and being a pastor is the word many. Many. Right? Uh, you almost want Jesus to have said, there will be a few. There will be a few on the day of judgment who think that they know me and they don't know me. But he doesn't say that. He says many. And so then I just thought of my own life, like Paul thinking of the Jews. I thought of my own life and my own background, my own upbringing. And I just thought to myself, you know, I think there are many in the church that that I grew up in who have this kind of false assurance, who think that they're okay. And, And let me explain to you why. Explain to you why I think that the church that I grew up in and, and churches, many churches like these, perhaps churches you've been uh, familiar with or part of as well, I think can breed this kind of false assurance. One of the things that has uh, run wild uh, in the United States for a number of years is revivalism. And so like the Jews who had these certain methods or measures or external forms that they were keeping. I do this and do this and do this and then okay with God. We, we just developed our own in, in our, you know, southern church culture. And uh, so, so two of the measures and methods, and I, let me say this and I want to make a, a note about them. If you had asked me when I was a young child and, and growing up in church, how is it that one saved, I would have given you two answers that are interesting uh, and neither one of them would have been repent and believe. But I would have said, uh, you walk the aisle and you pray a prayer. Now, listen, I, I'm not up here this morning to condemn the measure of walking an aisle or praying a prayer. I, I think that the Lord, through those measures, has saved numerous people. And so I'm not, I don't think there's anything in and of themselves. If I went to a church and I was preaching and they offered an invitation, uh, you know, I, I, I would do it. You know, it's fine. I, we don't practice it, but, but I would do it, so I don't mean that. But here's one of the things that happened is that we developed these external measures of things that you could do without having a transformed heart. You could just walk the aisle and then you could say these words and you could pray this prayer. And then we did two other things that combined with those measures actually created a dangerous environment. One of the things we did was that for the people who walked the aisle and prayed the prayer, we gave them instant assurance. We said to those people who walk the aisle and who pray to prayer, you're saved and don't you ever doubt it. We might have even given them a card. Put this in your Bible. This is the date on which you were saved. Never doubt it. And so then if you're like my uncle, who is now approaching 70, and who walked the aisle when he was eight years old and prayed the prayer when he was eight years old and was given a card when he was eight years old telling him never to doubt his salvation. And he's lived the last 60-some-odd years bearing no fruit of obedience in his life. Not only do we have the task of sharing the gospel with those people, but convincing them they need to start doubting. The thing I want to say to that group, people like my uncle, is if you have no desire for obedience, it's okay to doubt you're saved. 
And so we gave them instant assurance. And then the fourth thing we did is we got rid of the measure of church discipline in the church. And, and this was a, just a terrible web we weaved, wove, vend, whatever. <laughs> it's a terrible web. Um, because as we've noted before, brothers and sisters, what is worse than an individual in the church committing adultery is a church which, nothing, which says nothing to that individual about it. And so then when you get rid of that measure, and I think that's just pretty descriptive of, of a number of churches that we've known and, and, and a number of churches that we've grown up in. And so it may well be that this morning that I'm preaching to a group of people who grew up in that, and this morning your defense is, your defense is, well, I walked the aisle and I prayed the prayer and I'm never doubting it and I'm still a member of that church. And so this is, this is the way I just want to make a particular point of application then to all of us this morning and I want to say it this way. Point three. A lifelong pursuit of obedience is a necessary fruit of saving faith. A lifelong pursuit of of obedience is a necessary fruit of saving faith. Now, I'm, I'm trying to say this point very carefully. The reason I say a pursuit of obedience is because I do not want to hold up the image that perfect obedience is going to be in your life if you're really a Christian. I know that's not the case. But there must be a pursuit of obedience in your life. There must be a desire within your heart that wants to walk in obedience to the Lord, that when faced with your sin, wants to turn from it. And that pursuit of obedience needs to characterize your life. The reason I'm also saying that it's a fruit of saving faith is, I don't want to at all give the image of saying exactly the opposite of what Paul is arguing in this text. Paul is not arguing, do enough obedient things and you will be saved. What Paul is saying to them is, you can't be obedient enough, therefore place your faith in Christ, saving faith. However, saving faith bears the fruit in our lives. We're saved by faith alone, but when you're saved by faith alone, it bears the fruit of obedience pursuit of obedience in your life and it's a necessary fruit that is to say if somebody says i have saving faith but there's no pursuit of obedience in their lives then you are in the right good and necessary position of saying i'm not so sure you have saving faith because a good tree bears good fruit whereas james says Show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. Right? Saved by faith alone, but a fruit of saving faith is the lifelong pursuit of obedience, and it's a necessary fruit of saving faith. And so I I just want to say to anybody in our congregation today, anybody hearing me preaching today, if you have no desire for obedience and you've been relying on your defense before God that at one point you walked an aisle or at one point you prayed a prayer or something, I just want to plead with you today. Do not trust in those things alone. But today, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
In fact, I want to say to all of us, I think this is the response for every one of us who has been walking in a pattern of life where we're sinning and not turning from it. And my prayer today is that that's convicting to you. And so what I want to say to you today, if that's characterizing you, is today, repent and believe. Turn from that sin and look by faith to the finished work of Christ who lived and died and was raised for you. And know as you repent and trust in Him by faith that you're forgiven of your sins and cleansed from all manner of unrighteousness. May there be no one in our congregation who does not care about their sin and does not care about the pursuit of obedience who thinks that they're okay with God. And so today, the call for all of us is simply to, again, fresh, as we consistently do in our lives, turn from sin, turn from hope in ourselves, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Place our faith in Him. When we initially do that as a believer, we show that faith by being baptized. When we do that as believers, as we continually walk with Christ, one of the reasons for this meal is not so that we might say, I repented and believed years ago. One of the reasons we have this meal is so that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we can symbolize and show and bear testimony to the fact that today, my heart is repentant and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I just want to say one more brief thing, and that is, not only today is the call to us, repent and believe, but then it's to go further and ask this additional question, and what then do I need to do to make sure that I don't continue to walk in sin? This is, this is the difference between worldly and godly sorrow, isn't it? Worldly sorrow feels bad about our sin. Godly sorrow asks the further question, what do I need to put into my life to make sure I do not go down that path? And so this morning, I just want to call all of us to repentance, to faith, and to asking, what measures do we need to take to make sure we live a life that does not blaspheme the Lord's name among the nations, but that draws glory to Jesus Christ? So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we look afresh to the gospel as we come to the table. Maybe you want to reflect on the text. Maybe you want to spend the time praying. But we're going to take a moment of silence. In that moment of silence, the ushers are going to come forward. The musicians are going to come forward and get in place. Then we're going to pray and distribute the bread and distribute the cup. And then we're going to eat the cup from the bread together. Then we're going to drink from the cup together as a congregation, publicly and corporately professing our faith in Jesus Christ, even as we sing together the amazing grace of our God. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.